Thank you so much for the invitation to be here today, for the good singing, for the good prayers, and for the two excellent lessons that we've already had. When Jim asked me to be on the program and gave me the schedule, and I saw that David Smith and Steve Hall was given uh, time before me, I thought, why does he want me? And then I thought, well, he wants you to appreciate them all the more. So maybe that's a good reason. But the good, good lessons from these good brethren. I used to wonder a lot about what's going to happen to the church in the next generation. But uh, being with Jimmy in, a door was opened that allowed us to see good, sound, young gospel preachers. Cliff Goodwin, David Smith, Steve Hall, and many others that uh, made me realize that we've got some good young gospel preachers and we need to support them and uh, appreciate them for what they are. When Jim asked me to be on the Good News Today program, I was set back just a bit because I've never really enjoyed being in front of the camera. Somebody told me years ago, you ought to be in the media. You've got a face for radio and a voice for newspaper. <laughs> so I thought, well, maybe I ought to. But nevertheless, I, I appreciate that. And then he said, uh, I want you to do this program called Leaving a Legacy. And he, uh, he gave me a verse to read, and I went home and read it. And I want you to open your Bibles to uh, Psalm 71 and verse 18. And I read that verse. Now also, when I'm old and gray-headed, O oh God, forsake me not, until I have showed thy strength unto this generation and thy power to everyone that is to come. And I thought, why did he pick me? <laughs> then I began to realize I'm getting old. Every morning I wake up and it takes me a while to limber up, you know, and, and to get everything working just right. So I, I know that I'm not as young as I used to be. And I got an email three years ago from a cousin, the year I turned 70. He said, your warranty is up. <laughs> <coughs> well, I knew what he was talking about, you know, three score and ten. So I emailed him back and I said, I'm going to try for that if by reason of strength, four score. You know, the national average now is up to about four score as far as the uh, average uh, lifetime, uh, about the turn of the century, it was in the 40s. So um, we are getting older and the world is filled with older people and, and we do need, uh, I guess, to leave a legacy. But I got to thinking about that. How old am I anyway? I went up to Brother Perry Cotham a couple of years ago. We were over at Pulaski, Tennessee, and he was at that time about 98 years old, and, and he preached a good sermon, and I put my arm around him. I said, Brother Perry, I hope you live to be a long time. He said, why is that, Brother Deadman? He said, because when you're gone, I'm going to be the older generation. <laughs> and I don't know if I'm ready for that or not, you know. But if I'd just listened to brethren pray through the years, I would have known that. Because I remember when I was young and they would pray, Father, 
Thank you for Brother Deadman and give him a long, useful life in the kingdom. And then a few years passed and I heard things like, Father, thank you for Brother Deadman and give him a ready recollection of the things he <laughs> has prepared. Recently a brother prayed, Father, thank you for Brother Deadman and give him a few more years in the kingdom. <laughs> but maybe I'm like the fellow who applied for that job over at Walmart, you know. They hire older people over there. He's filling out the application. That's pretty good. He got the word zip. And he wrote, well, pretty good for my age. <laughs> but when Jim asked me to, you know, do a little five-minute segment on leaving a legacy, I thought, what can I say that would help anybody? What kind of gift could I give to the generation to come? And then I thought, well, what about those who gave me gifts? What about the legacy that I was given? And I thought about men like Charles Lemons, who used to preach here. James Watkins, who's still living, of course. Bobby Jones, a good friend of mine, a great gospel preacher. Lawrence Garman, the preacher over at Chattanooga Valley, you remember him? He, uh, he had this men's training class. As a result, there's at least a dozen preachers from the Chattanooga Valley Church, either full-time or part-time through the years. Uh, congregations, I believe this congregation's been good in, in the encouraging and supporting young men to preach. Uh, I believe Larry Acuff's from here, isn't he? Bless your hearts. <laughs> Larry's a good friend of mine, great gospel preacher, and I appreciate him, and he's always mentioned uh, White Oak. But then my parents gave me a, a legacy. I learned a lot. Um, my mother taught me Steve had to meet a challenge. She would say, now you answer me when I talk to you, and I'd say, but Mom, she don't you talk back to me. <laughs> She taught me about the science of osmosis. Shut up and eat your supper. I never have learned how to close my mouth, close that mouth and eat your supper. She learned me about justice. She said, one day you'll have kids and I hope they turn out just like you are. <laughs> my daddy taught me a great lesson on how to make wise decisions and choices and to be careful what you say. You know, he would catch me in something that I probably shouldn't have been doing. And he would say, now I want you to explain that to me. And I would go into my explanation and say, are you talking to me or some dummy? <laughs> and I'd say, well, I'm talking to you, Dad, and I'd always get punished. So I thought, well, I'm giving the wrong answer to that question. So the next time he asked me that, they said, are you talking to me or some dummy? I gave the other answer. That didn't work, and don't ever, don't ever try that at home. But leaving a legacy is a serious thing, really, and, and it's something that we ought to be thinking about. But we ought not to lose our sense of humor, and we ought not to ever forget to laugh. Laughter is good for us. I believe it helps us. You know, there are things that I cried about 40 and 50 years ago that I laugh about now, things that... I thought it was so serious and the world was coming to an end and I realized that wasn't true and now we can laugh about some of those things but, but we really need to 
to think about this this thing of legacy. We live in a generation really that, that does not exalt the elderly as they should. You know, the Bible says, Thou shalt rise, uh, rise up before the hoary head and honor the face of the old man and fear thy God. I am the Lord. But again, it also tells us about the strength of the youth. Proverbs 20, verse 29, The glory of young men is their strength, and the beauty of old men is their gray hair. I don't know why it never says anything about those with no hair, but uh, with gray hair, that seems to be a sign of of something, you know, and I said that to one of the elders up at Springfield, Tennessee, when I preached there. He walked up to me one day, and I had a big head full of hair, you know, and he said, you know, brain and hair don't mix. And I looked at his shiny head, and I said, well, which one did you lose first? <laughs> and that was right before I packed, but anyway, <laughs> but, but as we think about our story today, there's a, there's a story in the Old Testament back in Genesis chapter 26, beginning with verse 12 and through verse 19, if you'd like to turn to those verses. Genesis chapter 26, beginning with verse 12. Then Isaac sowed in the land and, and received in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man waxed great and went forward and grew until he became very great. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great store of servants. And the Philistines envied him. For all the wells which his father's servants had digged in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines had stopped and, and filled them with earth. And Abimelech said unto Isaac, Go from us, for thou art much mightier than we. And Isaac departed thence and pitched his tent in the valley of Gear and dwelt there. And Isaac digged again the wells of water which they had digged in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham, and he called their names after the names of which his father called them. And Isaac's servants digged in the valley and found there a well of springing water. You know, when you think about this story, there, there's not a whole lot we know about Isaac as far as what the Bible says about him. But there is a lot we know about him from the context and for implications and other things that we read about. But as you think about these two men, Abraham and Isaac, in the history of the Jews, those were two important characters. And yet as we think about Isaac, we know, we know he received the promise of God that was given to his father Abraham. I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse you, and, and thee shall all families be blessed. Well, of course, we know and understand that to be fulfilled in Christ, as Christ was, no doubt, the seed of Abraham. Isaac was that son of promise. You remember when that promise was given to Abraham, he had no children. And he might even think, well, how, how, can, how can my seed bless anybody when, I'm, when I have no children? And they were getting up in age, you know. 
Even in those days, a hundred was quite old by Abraham's time. And so they decided, well, we're going to have to do something about this. And so you know the story of Hagar, the handmaid, and the birth of Ishmael. But that wasn't God's plan. And I think how often man tries to uh, make God's plan for him, you know. In other words, God, God has a plan, but uh, we don't see it working like we want it to work, so we're going to have to improvise our own. But that wasn't what God wanted. And so when Isaac was born, Isaac was the seed of promise. God said, uh, Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a seed indeed, a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. So we know that much about Isaac, that he no doubt was that son of promise. I think we know a little bit about Isaac when we read the story of, of the uh, sacrifice that Abraham was to make of, of, of Isaac. I mean, I don't know how old Isaac really was at this time, but I picture him as a, as a young man. You know, he was going up the mountain with his father, carrying the wood for the fire. And he, he had enough sense of presence to know they were going to make a sacrifice. But he said, Father, we have all the makings, you know, of the fire and so forth, but where's the sacrifice? And God, Abraham just simply said, God will provide. And of course, God always does. But I see that son willingly laying himself down on that altar and even as that knife was raised before him and no doubt would have plunged into his chest, we have nothing to indicate that he made any resistance. I believe we can see him as an as obedient son to his father Abraham. And then I, I, I read uh, about him in Genesis 26, 3, where he is to sojourn in the land. And God said, I will be with thee and bless thee, for unto thee and to thy seed, I will give all these countries and I will perform the oath which I swear to Abraham thy father. So we know a few things about Isaac. We know that he was a successful man. Even in these verses we read, he, he, he had obtained a lot of possessions. Abimelech said, you're great. And, and, and we, you're too big for this land. Go from us. And we, we understand uh, a few things about him like that. Isaac had the fortune, or maybe misfortune, of having a great father. You know, I think about that sometimes. I think Isaac, the son of Abraham. You know, it's often difficult sometimes to walk in the shoes of a great father or a brother or another family member. I think about Bill and Alan Watkins. As long as I've known those two boys, and when they go preach, I always hear people say, you know, they're pretty good preachers, but they're not, uh, they're not as good as their daddy. I mean, I've heard that often. And then I've heard people compare the two, you know. I heard people say things like, you know, Bill is more like his mother, and 
I've often said Foy is the best preacher of the Watkins family anyway. I've never heard her, but I've heard women talk about the great job that she would do in women's um, days and lectures. And they say, you know, Adam looks, or Alan looks more like his father, and yet he's not really his father when it comes to preaching. So, you know, you have that. Well, we've seen it in a couple of our presidents. I believe we've only had two John Adams and John Quincy Adams and George Bush and George W. Bush. And people compare, you know, like that. And so I can just see people saying, you know, there's Isaac, but boy, he's not, uh, he's not Abraham. Well, the, the Bible doesn't really describe a lot of the great achievements then of this man Isaac, but we do know he's successful. And in our text, there's a verse that, that's very important to our lesson today. And he dug again the wells of the water which they had dug in the days of Abraham their father. I can tell you from my own experience, wells were very important to the lives of people when they didn't have what we call today running water. I don't know how many of you remember, but I remember quite well going to the well and bringing water. Who was it talked about the bucket and the dipper? Was that you? I remember that. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever drank out of a dipper? Yeah, some of you. Did you ever think, you know, when you went in there and picked up that dipper, everybody in the family is drunk out of this, out of this dipper? And the story was told, and I don't know how true this is. You know, there's something about preacher stories that I learned a long time ago. They might not have happened. But they could have happened. So, so we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Just don't say it happened to me if it didn't. But the story is told, you know, of the preacher coming home for the Sunday dinner, which is a custom gone by the wayside. I have mixed emotions about that. But, but nevertheless, here he was, and he was thirsty, and he said, I need a drink of water. And Grandma said, well, the bucket's there on the table in the kitchen. And he went in there, and he picked up, the gourd. Do you remember the gourd for a dipper? Does anybody remember taking a gourd and making a dipper? You know? And as he picked it up, he looked around and he saw all of those folks and Grandma with her snuff <laughs> running out the mouth. And he said, he thought, you know, I, I don't know if I want to drink out of this dipper or not. So finally he took the dipper and he just turned it around and he drank right next to the handle, you know, and put it back in the dipper, and Grandma slapped her leg and said, Man, man, so that preacher drinks out of the dipper just like I do. <laughs> but but these, these, these wells were important. I mean, that's where you got your water. And I know uh, some places down where I live now, I live in the, I live in the house that my great-grandfather built 150 years ago. My mother was born and died in that house at the age of 96. She didn't live there the whole time, but it's always been in the family. And of course, every generation's added on to the house. You know, the, the original longhouse is our den. It's just a shabby old country to dwell in, but it's our house. And I remember those days that you had the well and the importance of those things and, and what it meant and what would it have been like if you had no water 
and, and there were some wells that, well, the water was just better than other wells. My grandmother's well had sulfur in it. And I'm telling you, that's, that's not a good smell when you try to drink. But you did because you had to have water. I mean, so here was the wells in the days of Abraham, and now they're filled with dirt. This tells us that we have an enemy that's always around. And we can't disregard that. I mean, somebody fill those wells with dirt. Well, now, I know uh, wells can be filled by neglect, and I'll mention that again in a moment. But it seems that there was the presence of the enemy. And you have that throughout the Bible. I mean, the, the Bible does not in any way downplay the other side. It's there. Beginning with Eve in the garden. No other person to be a representative of Satan, so he used the serpent, the most subtle beast of the field. And all through Scripture we have the opposition. Christ nor the apostles never did in any way disregard the presence of Satan. None of them ever made light of it. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, 8, and I suppose if there ever was a person who knew about the power of Satan, it would have been the Apostle Peter. I mean, here's a guy that said, Lord, if all of these leave you, I won't. Of course, the others agreed with that. We sometimes think Peter's the only one that said that, but the others agreed with him, you know. So did the others also. But, but Jesus, you know, Jesus had that ability to look in the heart of man. He could... He knew man better than man knew himself. And you know, Peter, he said, before the cock grows twice, you'll have done thrice. Not me, Lord. But you know that old enemy, Satan, gets in the hearts of some of the best men. And there's Peter sitting at the campfire of the enemy and looking at the activity on the hill and they were saying things like, well, you know, they finally caught that old blasphemer. They're going to string him up, going to nail him to the cross. And somebody might say, well, you know, well, we'll go get all of them and just string all of them up. Just kill them all. And there's Peter sitting right there hearing that and thinking, that's my neck they're talking about. And somebody says, oh, right here's one of them right here. <laughs> no, not me. You, you're mistaken. Oh, that's you. I know. He's the one that cut off the earth. We know that's uh, his speech betrays him, and he denies with a curse. Now, folks, if you want people to not know that you're a Christian, just curse. I mean, everybody in the world knows that's not the language of a Christian. You know, I had a son-in-law. He's, of course, my ex-son-in-law now, and I don't blame my daughter at all. But sometimes I think he had a better insight on what it took to live the Christian life than some of my brethren. He would say things like, well, Leroy, um, some of those folks that go to church down there where you preach, um, they're at the same place as I am on Saturday night. And they do some of the same things that I do on Saturday night. And they talk just like I do. He said, I don't believe they're Christians. 
He knew that's not the way Christians lived. He knew that's not the way Christians talked. And he wasn't a Christian. But then those that claimed to be Christians try to justify it and, and say it's okay. So sometimes I think he had a better insight on what was right and wrong than maybe some who tried to justify their actions. So Peter cursed. And you know the story. But later he wrote in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be, be diligent, you're vigilant, your adversary of the devil is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You think about that. He wrote by inspiration again in Ephesians 6, 11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the wiles of the devil. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath has desired to have you. They may sift you as wheat. May I prayed for you, and when you're converted, strengthen the brethren. You know, every every generation must teach God's truth. To clean those wells was difficult and hard work, but the results were great, and there's no substitute for it, for work. But to accomplish God's purpose, we have to work every generation. You know, we can't sit back and say, well, you know, we've, we had some good preachers in the past generation. They, they preached the truth. They, they introduced to us what we know today as the Reformation Movement, and, and it's great, and as a result, we can just sit back and enjoy that. But we've got to leave the legacy for the next generation. We've got to make sure we hand them truth. You know, our wells today are, are filled with many things. Unfaithfulness. Every congregation I know, no doubt has a list, either written or memorized, of folks that used to be here that are still in the area, but don't go anywhere. Oh, if we could have just kept that back door shut, think how large the church would be today. But we just kind of neglect things and, and, and we our teaching program is not what it ought to be, and, and we're, not, we're not preaching the word as we should, and we're not concerned with truth. In our, even in our Bible classes, if we're not careful, we'll be more concerned with maybe how pretty the pictures are and the books that we give our kids than, than the message we give them. I remember years ago, Jim, I don't, did you ever know Brad Brumley? Yeah, years ago, Brad was having a, teacher's workshop over at Freed Hardeman during, I guess it was during a lectureship. You know, my mother-in-law was a free, was a dorm mother at Freed, and we would go over every year, and we had a good place to stay and all that. I remember one, one young preacher said, Brother Brumley, I preach for a congregation of about 300 members. How many Bible classes do we need? Well, don't answer that very quickly. I want to I'm going to get out my pad and, and write that down because 
You know, that's about the size of the congregation I preach for. And I want to know this from a man experienced as Brother Bromley was. And there we'll forget his answer. His answer was in the form of a question. He said, how many faithful, dedicated, sound teachers do you have? Don't be so concerned, he said, about dividing your kids up into classes just because they're in a different grade at school or because you have so many. He said, make sure that every class, from the youngest to the oldest, has a good, sound Bible teacher. Isn't that something? Now, some of us grew up we only had three classes. You remember that, don't you? We had the auditorium class. We always had that. Then we had the big class and the little class. That's what we had. And often, the big class is over here, little class is over here. If you go back far enough, you would just divide the auditorium with curtains and sometimes with no curtains and put the we called it the card class. You remember that? Does anybody remember the card class? You know, they had the little placards and little Bible stores and questions. Of course, they had the answers on the back side of the card so the teacher would know. But you'd hold it up. And, you know, the, that, that's what we had. We weren't concerned with the fact, hey, we need to have all the first graders here and all the second graders here. We got to have faithful, dedicated Bible teachers. We only had three teachers, we only had three classes. You remember how difficult it was to get a substitute? If you was in charge of that, door would crack open and some fella would poke his head out and he'd look at you and say, everybody dropped their head because they didn't want to look up and see, you know. That's the way it was in those days. But then we got smart and educated and we got all of the information from, in most cases, denominational sources on how to divide our Bible classes, on how to grow a congregation, and we sometimes forget that if you only got one teacher, you only need one class. So we need to understand that every generation is responsible. I, I sometimes think about a man I knew down in Gurley, Alabama, where I started preaching. Well, where I started preaching for the same congregation every Sunday. Ernest Smith. He was there every day, every time the doors were open. He was there at every work, and he was there at every meeting. He was, you, you couldn't have anything at the church building without Ernest Smith being but Ernest Smith never led a prayer, never waited on the table, never led a song. He was just there. I was young then. I was in my early 20s. Barely turned 20, really. It was 1960. I was born in 39. So I was 21 years old. So I said to to Brother Smith one day, I said, Brother Smith, you're such an inspiration to me in so many ways. You're, 
you're always here. But you never participate in the service other than I'm sure you sing and pray yourself or to God silently. But you never wait on the table and you never read a scripture. You never lead a prayer. And I, I just wondered why. He said, well, it's like this, Brother Leroy. They never asked me. What? Oh, he said, when I was young and had the courage to get up there and do it, they never asked me. I thought, how sad. I mean, here's a man that had a family, a family of five or six. My sister married one of his boys later, but one of them's an elder. I mean, they're just good, good family. He raised them up right, but they never asked me. Oh, that's why I appreciate so much when I go to a congregation and I see the young boys read the scripture or maybe get up and lead a song or, you know, we've got to use them. If I could give a legacy of any kind, I would say to every congregation, use your young people. You know, they're, they're God's children, you know. They're not his grandchildren. And if we wait till the next generation for them to start serving, we might be in trouble. So I think it's important for us today that we recognize the generation that we have of young people and that we have to ask them, we have to use them. I also know that there are things that we know that, that our children don't know. Or there are things that, that we know that even our younger brothers and sisters don't know. My brother Bill, whom some of you know, you know, he preached at Ridgedale for a while. He's down in Baden, Georgia now. I baptized Bill when he was about 14 years old. Good man. My baby brothers, eight years separating us, and there's three in between. Of course, most everybody in our family are not members of the body of Christ, you know. The sister who married Brother Smith's son is, and so is Bill. But when Bill was about 12, mother called me one day in tears. I'd moved down to Huntsville area to work with Redstone Arsenal. And she said, Junior Williams just drowned. Junior was a little boy my brother's age that lived up behind us on the hill. I said, what happened? She said, he and Bill was over in that pond, you know, across from the cordell. I said, what? Nobody ever swam in that pond. We all knew there was a well in that pond that, that was dangerous, and we didn't really know where it was, and so nobody ever swam in that pond. She said, Bill and Junior didn't know about that. Junior got caught in the well, and Bill almost, ground trying to get him out. Bill came, stayed with us a while after that. I think probably that was some of the time that I was able to influence him and so forth. But I've often thought, why didn't we tell Bill and Junior about that well in that pond? 
I mean, we would have saved a life by just passing on a little bit of information that we knew. So when I was asked to leave a legacy, I thought, well, at first, I don't have anything to, anything to leave anybody, and I got to thinking about all of this. I remember something Brother Joe Sanders told me years ago when I was preaching in Springfield, Tennessee. He came up and spoke to our men's dinner, I believe it was. Brother Joe put his arm around me. He said, Brother Demonson, let me tell you something that somebody told me when I was young. And he said, I've always tried to pass this on to younger preachers. Of course, I was in my mid-30s then. I thought I was getting old. But he said, here's something that if you'll live by, it'll make it better in your work for the Lord. I said, what is it? I was going to write it down. He said, you don't have to write it down. It's, it's pretty simple. He said, if people aren't involved in the planning level, they won't be there on the performance level. Well, you know, I didn't think much about that at the time and moved on down to Bremen, Georgia, and had a pretty good work over there, then over to Woodstock. And the elders met with a couple of the deacons one day and said, we want you to, we want you to work with our young people. They, they had been burned on a couple of youth ministers and decided that was not the way to go. To tell you the truth, I've never been a fan of youth ministers. I know there's some good ones, but I think about congregations that are not faithful any longer. I think about the landmark congregation where Brother James Watkins preached. Right there on the same parking lot with Apologetics Press. And later when I heard that they had moved, I didn't know where they moved to, but I know it was to the left. And uh, I said, what, how could a congregation that a preacher like James Watkins go liberal? They said, well, Buddy Bell was a youth minister. You remember Absalom? He stood in the gates of the city and he said to the people, you know, if I were your king, you'd be dealt righteously, indicating his father was not treating him correctly. And here's what the Bible said about Absalom. Absalom stole the hearts of the children of Israel. It didn't matter what his daddy did. They loved Absalom. And the youth minister sometimes will come in and excite the kids about things they've never been excited about before and maybe get them to come better to services than they've ever come before. And the parents think, well, boy, I mean, he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. He's got my kids all excited about the Lord, and he can't do any wrong. Preacher gets in the pulpit and tries to teach against that. He's history. Because... He stole their hearts. So I would say, you know, you got to be careful about things like that as a congregation. Uh, you got to be careful about who you use and, and, and ways to influence that. But let me get back to my point. That's the way it is when you get old, David. You kind of ramble. 
So anyway, the deacons came in and, and the elders said, we're not going to have any youth ministry anymore. We want you guys to work with the young people. And why don't you bring us a list next month of things that you want to do. And so they came in with a list and they were all down in the dumps and disheartened. And so here's our list. We said, we can't get any cooperation. See, we met with the parents and the young people and we presented them this list and they don't, they just they just hadn't cooperated with us at all. And I remembered the words of Joe Sanders. And I said, uh, fellas, let me make a suggestion. Call all the young people and the parents together and say, look, we, we need to have some youth activities here. What do you suggest we do? And and see what they come up with. So a month or so later, they came in just beaming, smiling. Man, things are working good with the youth program. Our parents are cooperating. The young people are participating. And here's our list of activities and gave it to the elders. And one of the elders said, well, this is the same list you gave us last time. They said, yeah, we know. Doesn't that tell you something? you'll probably end up with the same list. But you'll also end up with folks who are involved on the planning level. And they will be there on the participation level. That's been tried and, true, and proven to be true. I think that's something that we all need to think about. And Brother Sanders gave me that legacy, and I just have always then, since the thing in Woodstock, I've always remembered that and tried to pass it on. There's a Bible verse in Isaiah 58 verse 12. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall be called the repairer of the breach. The restorer of streets to dwell in. I think about that. And I'm reminded of Isaac again. He, you remember what he called those wells? You remember the names he gave them? He called them by the names his father named them. Oh, how we need to call Bible things by Bible names and do Bible things in Bible ways. We, we, need, to, we need to emphasize truth and and we need to be careful about our opinions about things. You know, I appreciate my brethren's opinions. They're usually almost as good as mine. But I've sat through business meetings with or without elders for more than 50 years. And I've heard them argue about things like the Lord's Supper. One brother said, you know, we need to do something about the contribution in the Lord's Supper. Uh, we've got two items of worship back to back, and we need to separate them with prayer or a song. What? Are those not worship items too? Well, yes. Now, I, I enjoy being where that's done, but that's just a... You know, it's just a matter of opinion about that. I'm reminded of a preacher who moved to a congregation and 
in the absence of elders, they had one of those notorious business meetings and they were arguing about that and somebody said, why don't we have the Lord's Supper before preaching, which is our custom, as we've always done. One of the brothers said, well, that's never been our custom. Our custom is to have it after preaching like we do it now. After a bit of discussion, one brother said, I wish Brother Smith were here. He could clear this up. The preacher said, well, who's Brother Smith? I said, well, he's, he's one of the charter members, and he's down at the nursing home. So the preacher went to see him, introduced him, said, Brother Smith, I'm the new preacher. He said, I want to ask you something. He said, is it, the, is it the custom and tradition of the church to have the Lord's Supper before the sermon? No, he said, I, I don't recall that being our custom. He said, well, is it the custom or tradition to have the Lord's Supper after the sermon? No, he said, I don't recall. That's our custom. The preacher said, but we've been arguing. He said, that's it. That's our custom. <laughs> now, I have an opinion about the contribution and the Lord's Supper. Since you want to hear it, I'll tell you. I wondered several years ago when I'd be listening to those things, people say, you know, people just need to know that the contribution is not the Lord's Supper. And I began to thinking about that. I, I had a discussion with Jim about this over at GBN. So I thought, I wonder why people even think that in the first place. So we're going on Sunday morning and there's three stacks of trays down here on the table. The uh, unleavened bread, the fruit of the vine, and contribution plates. Do you think that our young people might look at that and well there it is. So I got to thinking about something. I remembered years ago we'd have a good supper and mother would serve apple cobbler or banana pudding, and we'd eat it, and we'd say, that's a good supper, Mother, and we'd get up and thank her for that supper. But then I remember the times that we would eat, no dessert, maybe move in the living room and enjoy other activities, and in a little while, here she comes with a tray with little bowls of banana pudding. <laughs> you know, it just made that banana pudding seemed different. And it was a mother, thank you so much for this banana pudding. You see, that separated in our minds our supper from that dessert. Now, I'm not saying, you know, that that's the way you ought to eat, but I'm just saying, and that's a crude illustration, but after all, I'm crude, you know. So <laughs> when, when I thought about that, I thought, you know, we never think mom for the banana pudding when we ate it with our supper, but when we, it just seemed to be different. So I began telling elders when I was asked about that, why don't you just get the plates off the table? Why don't you get a little table over to the side and put the plates on their own table? And when the men Stand up to serve the contribution. Don't even stand behind the table. 
our young people will grow up then not even thinking that the contribution is part of the Lord's Supper. Now, that's my opinion, folks. Now, that's, that's just my opinion. And we're even worse on Sunday night. Everybody that hadn't taken the Lord's Supper, come forward or go to a room. I don't like going to a room, but come forward and you're in this song and you'll be served or maybe raise your hand if you're not able to come forward. And they come forward to take the Lord's Supper because they didn't have it that day for whatever reason. It used to be for providential hindrance. I haven't even heard that word used in a long time, you know. That was simply saying God kept me from coming today, you know. But anyway... Sometimes, brethren, even hold the plate behind their back when they take the, the uh, fruit of the vine over, you know, and then after they take that, they take the plate out. And When I first started attending the services with Jane down at Chattanooga Valley, I thought you had to pay to take the supper because <laughs> I only went on Sunday night, you know. I didn't understand all of that. I don't ever recall, I, you might do it here, but... I've tried to get brethren to do it other places, never been successful, but if you want to serve the Lord's Supper to those that were not there, and of course, there's an opinion about that, I guess, but have you ever thought about just saying, is there anybody here that hadn't had opportunity to give today? I mean, there might be some folks, you know, that were visiting somewhere else and took the supper that morning and Maybe they haven't given their contribution. They might not even think they ought to. We might could teach them something, you know, about that. I mean, I, that's just my opinion. But if I'm going to leave a legacy, then I'm going to have to leave my opinion about some things. <laughs> because as I've, as I've grown older, I, and more time is getting away, it's gotten away. But I think about, you know, I, I've, I've collected a lot of answers to a lot of these problems. But nobody's asking me the questions anymore. So what am I going to do about it? But, but seek out, if you're young, seek out somebody in the congregation with gray hair or no hair. And just sit down with them someday and say, uh, let's just talk about something. Tell me the way it was. Uh, I think you learned something. And then us older people, be a mentor to the younger people. Just pick out a young person. Say, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna encourage that young fellow. I'm gonna, on his birthday, I'm gonna take him out to eat. I'm gonna make sure at every service I shake his hand and talk to him if he reads or leads a song or whatever. I'm gonna make sure I pat him on the back. Just make sure you do that. Let's all be legacy leaders. But it may be here today that somebody's not a Christian. I don't know your hearts. I would think that 